out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the vibrators because I recently spoke to their drummer, John Eddie Edwards, to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff. Anyway, the most exciting news, and there's quite a lot, they've got a new album coming out this year, plus Cherry Red Records has repackaged five CDs, which is the albums between, between 1985 to 1990, um, including Recharged, Meltdown, Vicious Circle, and Volume 10, plus a live record as well, lots of bonus tracks, and a beautiful booklet. What more do you want? Anyway... This is the interview, so after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years. Eddie, take it away. Um, yeah, probably the, the thing for me that changed everything, I remember vividly uh, in the 50s, I was born in 51, I remember vividly in the 50s Elvis Presley and the, the, the radical change that that happened. And then, of course, after that, it was uh, in England that we had um, Lonnie Donegan. I mean, the first record I ever bought was Lonnie Donegan. My old man's a dustman. I liked, I liked all that skiffle thing. Yes. The, well, one, I, I... The, the one really big change I had was when I heard the Kinks. We really got me. That was it. From then on, it was, wow. It was you music. Know, that, that Kinks was one of the big bands. But, I, I mean, you, you, if you play You Really Got Me Today... It still sounds astoundingly raw and exciting, you know. It's yes, it's interesting. Record. I did a, an interview with that the guy who produced that a couple of weeks ago. He's still alive. Oh, Shell Selmy. Yes, that's the man. Yeah. yeah. He was really happy about everything until I had spoke about the manager of The Who and then he let fire on some things that I thought, oh... He hasn't forgot. He hasn't. He hasn't forgot why he disliked the. Um, yes, the manager was he? Yeah, so, I can't remember their names. They had two guys managing. Didn't they? Yeah, Kit Lambert was the one. Kit Lambert, that's it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he didn't hold back on what he thought of Kit Lambert at all, which was yeah. quite interesting. And that was the end of his relationship with the Who. So there you go. But yeah, he, he, he went. Um, the first two couple of singles by the Who, didn't he? I think. Um, y- yes. Anyway. That's yeah. right. And then he did a few very early stuff with David Bowie. But his stuff in the 60s was amazing. It's just extraordinary. So, uh, yeah, he was quite the man for a minute. And it was kind of interesting because he was from America and he just came over as a young kid to the UK and suddenly found himself doing, yeah, The Kinks, The Who. And um, I think also he might have worked with people like Jimmy Page as well at a stage. So when Yeah, when... Jimmy Page played on, on, you know, purportedly. I mean, they always said Jimmy Page always said he just played a tambourine on The Kinks but he was at those sessions, so I imagine that he played some rhythm guitar or something. I don't know. Yes, him and Jeff. We shall never know because the uh, good a good uh, session man never admits to his sessions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know it's always tricky. So, when did were your parents at all kind of of, of a music? Did they have any musical sort of interest? Um, not really. No, I mean my father liked things like Bing Crosby. You know, I mean he was born in 1915, so he liked things like Bing Crosby and. Uh, that kind of crooner stuff, you know, American artists. Uh, I can't think of any other guy that used to be popular. Uh, his daughter does singing now. Um, yes, well, there was, um, there was, well, Bing Crosby was one of the early ones, but my dad used to like people like Kay Starr and Teresa Brewer and then various country artists as well. Oh, yeah, a well, bit later. they were in the country and stuff. I think the thing for me probably was I had an, I have an older brother. He's 10 years older than me. 
And so, you know, when he, he you know, when Elvis Presley came around in 56, 57, he was 15, 16 years old. So he was right into all of that and uh, buying all those kind of rock and roll things, you know, like Johnny and the Hurricanes and uh, those kind of records in the, in the 50s. So I got used to hearing those. Yes. I can remember the day we first got our, uh, you know, not, you know, the... Uh, record player, the dance set record player that played 45s, and, and so you didn't have to get them on 78s on a wind-up gramophone anymore. Yes, I know, that's quite weird. Because I think my, my parents are probably not that much younger, but um, I think when they got married in the 50s, they sold everything, and they, they only brought a record player back into the house in the 70s when they got a bit of money together, being kind of that working-class background that I don't think you ever borrowed, no-one ever borrowed money, you know, and that was just not seen as something you did. So I think... Yeah, the word you bought things on tick, you know. Yes, but they tried to avoid it because that was the way that it would all go terribly wrong. But then, you know, it was interesting because David Bowie and Lemmy, who I, two of my kind of heroes, I suppose, if one has them, I mean, when they were ever asked about their musical influences, they both said in separate places, uh, Little Richard, it was kind of seeing Little Richard, that kind of blew their minds. Yeah, and Richard, that, I, I love his stuff. His records are fantastic. And that was Little the one. Richard, Chuck Berry, all that, 50s, Eddie Cochran, you know, uh, Buddy Holly. I mean, you know, over the years we've done a few covers, a couple of covers of Buddy Holly stuff and all those um, English rock and rollers like Johnny Kidd and the Pirates and things, you know, fantastic. Yes. So when the 60s come trundling along, and as, as there's a poem, I think, by Philip Larkin who mentions that the 60s start in 63 with the first Beatles album and Lady Chatterley's Lover. I mean, did you, you were at that age where you must have started to sort of sense and see things drastically happening from your Lonnie Donegan and Skiffle period and, you know... The, the... Yeah, well, I mean, I think at that point the music was coming from America and, and British artists like, you know, Cliff Richards was sort of... He was like a little bit of a pale imitation of Elvis and things and there weren't, you know, any really... You know, Billy Fury was very good but there weren't any really great British artist and then suddenly it all sort of swung around with the Beatles and the Kinks and the Yardbirds and the Rolling Stones and the Who and the Small Faces and all those bands were taking it back to America and you know and and playing it better and with more energy and more enthusiasm and more you know had better melodies and better songs and more better ideas and everything and then it all got sold you know as a British invasion of America that's what happened and it's really exciting to be in it you know yes. especially in the 60s when they had uh, you know they had all the pirate radio stations you know like Caroline and London and they would play all that music which you couldn't hear except on Radio Luxembourg which was you know, it was you know really crackly, fading in and out radio station because they were broadcasting it from Luxembourg. Yes, <laughs> and did you and did things like the John Peel's Perfume Garden? Did that sort of come into your kind of? Yeah, oh. I, I used to listen more to um, uh, Radio Caroline where I was a kid, rather than Radio London. I think John Peel was on Radio London. I used to listen to Kenny and Cash and all that kind of stuff, and John uh, Johnny Walker. Uh, there was a oh, there was a Scottish DJ that used to be on um, Luxembourg that I used to like, but I can't remember his name. But it, that, that's what I was getting into, you know. And then, uh, then of course, they started to play, um, you know, the Beatles and all those bands started to be on the um, Saturday Club with, uh, oh, what was his name? The DJ that used to run Saturday Club on a, on Radio 1. Well, it was the light programme then, days. And 
And we used to listen to that going to football on a Saturday morning when you were going to play football on a Saturday morning for the school and that. Yes, God, we loved our football. Did you, um, so when did a, a, a sort of the drum kit kind of appear into into your sort of life? I mean, when My did... Life. Well, I was always in um, the, the Cubs and the Scouts when I was a kid. I joined the Cubs when they, my parents used to be, you know, run it. Uh, they sort of took it over because um, the previous leaders were... It was a big news story at the time. I think it was 1958 or 59, 59, I think it was. And they they were murdered. The scout leader was murdered and the, the cub leader was shot through the spine and paralysed. And my parents sort of didn't want the, the scouts and the cubs to pack in, so they took it over. Yes. And they always had a band, you know, they had a marching band. And so from the, the age of about eight, you kind of think, oh, I want to be in the band and march down the street playing the drums and the bugle and all that, you know. Yes. Sort of thing. Yeah, that kid. My brother, like I said, was 10 years older than me, so he was playing the drums and marching, and I was walking at the back. So as soon as I got to about 10, I thought, right, I want to learn the drums. So that was the first drums that I ever played, it was only in marching bands. Yeah. And yeah. after that, it was I used to roadie for bands and do discos and you know DJ and stuff like that, and then... I actually bought my first pucker drum kit the day before the first um, vibrators gig. <laughs> Blimey! I bought it. I bought it on the Wednesday, and we played on the Thursday. I think that's amazing. I mean, were you? Was this all in London, by the way? This. Your... Oh yeah, yeah. I lived in Edgware. I lived in North London in Edgware. Yes, because I, I was. I did have a little time in the the Cub Scouts doing my bits and pieces there. I must admit, it, it's quite. Um, I was a little bit shocked when you mentioned that the two of the people had been murdered. I mean, that didn't sort of happen much in the wonderful world that was rural. No, Suffolk. it didn't. It was a big. It was a big thing. They were on holiday in Austria. Oh um, right, right. They were climbing up the mountains in Austria, and um, and then some guy shot them and robbed them. I guess um, I can't remember exactly. Yes, and it was a massive news story at the time in England um, because people didn't get murdered much in those days, and then there was a scandal that he was uh, the scout leader was you know on holiday with the the cub leader and they were sharing a room and all that, and then they looked into it and of course they had separate rooms and everything was in perfect innocence and uh, but of course because my parents had taken over that we got involved in the story and they had the you know newspapers come round to do interviews and find out what happened. Yes. Well, when you're young, can anybody die and always seem strange? But murder is... Um, that's oh, yeah. I don't, I, in all my life, I think the only people that's the only person I can ever think of that was murdered, yeah. Yeah, it is kind of strange, especially that close. I mean, during the, that sort of period, because you said sort of 51, so during that sort of like the summer of love, 67, you would have been a perfect age. And in London, there were things like, you know, the, the International Times, there was... Indica books and gallery. There was all those kind of performance art stuff going on with Yoko yeah. Ono. I mean, there was also in the Ali Pali, you know, in July of 1967 was the 14 hour Technicolor Dream. Were you kind of aware of that kind of, you know, the, oh, psych- yeah. the psychedelic peace, love and um, hugging yeah, well, people? Yeah, well, made of mine who lived up the road, he became our manager. Dave Wernham was a few years older than me, so he could go to those things. I was just a shade too young. Knox used to go to that. I mean, Knox used to saw Jimi Hendrix at... Uh, Manor House in in London, a pub in you know in Manor House, North London, and uh, and stuff like that. He saw the Beatles and things, and I was just a little bit too young to go to those things. But I saw Hendrix first in '69, and from about '68 onwards, that's all I did was go to gigs. You know, go and see bands 
all over London. You know, you just go and see whoever was playing. So, you know, you saw a lot of these, you know, massive acts when they were playing to 200 people in colleges and things. Yes, uh, this is true. I saw David Bowie when he first did his that whole Spiders from Mars thing in a college in uh, Regent Street, I think it was, in London. And, uh, uh, was it Regent Street Polytechnic? Yeah, in a hall that held probably no more than about 150, 200 people. Yes, and had he, and then had he sort of made the chain from his folky... Um, oh, yeah, yeah, it was full-on full on, uh, Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars playing all of those, those kind of songs. Yes. He, uh, he, the Hunky Dory album, it was when the Hunky Dory album came out. Right, my God. So when you were just at that age where you thought, this is it, I'm, I'm sort of probably left... Did you leave school at 16? No, I stayed on. I went. Uh, I did three years in the sixth form because I didn't do very well in my exams. So I was out doing gigs and roping for bands and and uh, going to see bands and stuff. So and playing football and cricket and all that kind of stuff. So the schoolwork got put on the back burner a little bit. And then I went to uh, North East London Polytechnic in in uh, Good Maze. I lived in Good Maze and uh, Ilford and that the college was embarking but it was a big college and they used to have a lot of bands on in the colleges in those days in in uh, the Barking precinct and in Walthamstow and they had bands you know massive bands that you know like uh, the Faces the Kinks Emerson Lake and Palmer all kinds of people that you know like that so you you be going out and they, they had the roundhouse in Barking as well you used to go down there a lot and see bands right Bit underground and all those kind of people there. Just casually, can just going. I know it's amazing. I have seen some of those kind of colleges, you know, in in Norwich, where you know during the seventies, that period, the early seventies, they'd obviously had an entertainment entertainment ents officer who just went, oh yeah, we'll yeah. Be, we'll book this band and this band. And you look and you think, oh my god, they were such, you know, they become such famous names and you think, yeah, yeah. It, was, it was almost I a bit casually done. When I was at North East London Politics, I wasn't on this social secretary but I I was more into music knew more about it than the others and they would sort of say what about this band and what about that band should we book them I remember they said oh should we get this band Slade and I and I we had the Slade Alive album in the house I was living in with my mates one of the other guys had bought it and we played it all the time and I said yeah yeah put them on there actually brilliant live and you know it'll be it'll be uh, a great key and they had it in one of the small halls, so they didn't want to risk it in the big hall. It held a thousand people. And then they played like six or eight months later or whatever it was. And, of course, by then they'd have about three number one singles. And so they were thinking, oh, they won't turn up, they won't play. But they, they turned up and it was, you know, absolutely, they were sensational. Yes. Not the old, it was just a brilliant front man. It was such in-your-face rock and roll. You thought, this is what we've got to do. Yeah, I think um, especially in those days, so many bands played so many gigs live, you know, from the Beatles, you know, they, they had that apprenticeship in Hamburg, didn't they? And a lot of bands, yeah. you know, played a lot. And recently I did an interview with the um, guitarist with Twisted Sister, who'd, who'd been going 10 years before they got a record label from this sort of like 71 to 70 right, to 81. Yeah. And, and, you know, would play once, twice a night for, you know, he counted up, you know, ridiculous amount of gigs they played because they had to try and earn money because that was their only job. But, you know, it would have been thousands of gigs before they made that first album. And, you know, he just said that, you know, unless you get that kind of, those kind of numbers under your belt, you know, you kind of don't, yeah, you're not quite with it. I mean, that's a bit of a sweet yeah, statement. I was talking to someone the other day and they, like, we, 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 you know, when Adele pulled out of those shows in Las Vegas, 
And I think the problem with her is she sort of went down the modern route of going online and selling a lot of records. And so she never kind of worked her way up through the various grades of club. And, you know, it's nerve-wracking enough going out and playing in front of sort of, you know, 50 of your mates on a, on a Wednesday night in a college or in a little bar or something. And she went pretty much from doing that to playing, you know, sort of 60 shows in Las Vegas residency. So it must have been terrifying, you know. Yes. <laughs> I know. I it's, it's quite a leap, isn't it? I mean, Knox had done those gigs. He'd been playing for 10 or... He'd been playing for about... When we started with the Vibrators, he was about 30, and he'd been playing since he was 14. So he'd done hundreds of gigs, and so and John and Pat had done a lot. But like I say, I bought my first drunk bit the day before our first gig, so I hadn't done any. <laughs> <laughs> but luckily, you, you could... I was cracking myself thinking, how the hell am I in this band with these guys? Yes. Yeah. As far as I was concerned, Pat was the best bass player in North London. John was the best guitar player and Knox was the best front man and songwriter. And I'm thinking, how have I managed to talk my way into doing this? Yes, it's quite, that's quite an apprenticeship, wasn't it? Did you, um, during that early period of the 70s, where were you sort of going musically? Because there was obviously at that stage, you know, like the birth of heavy metal with people like... Um, Black Sabbath and Deep Purple, and then you had the sort of then the you know the prog world, and then you had this you know folk world, and you know it was kind of exploding everywhere. And then you had people like the Doctors and Madness and Doctor Feelgood. I mean, being young and going to lots of gigs must have must have been a high time. But where did you, where was your heart sort of slightly sort of heading towards? Well, in the early seventies, the band that I was most into was probably the Faces. I used to go and see them a lot. I saw them about. 38 times, I think I worked it out once. And Humble Pie and those kind of, you know, in-your-face rock and roll bands and The Who and, again, The Kinks and stuff. You know, because even in those days, The Who was still only playing, you know, big uh, theatres like, you know, the Albert Hall and stuff, so you could go and see The Who and and certainly the faces were doing the college circuit, you know, so you could go and see them or the marquee, so you could go and see them all the time. Yes, I think John Peel has said one of the bands that I was most into at that time. I'd sort of toyed with the prog rock thing, but I got a bit bored with it. I like the rock and roll stuff a lot better myself. Yes, I do remember John Peel saying one of his best nights was when I think Sunderland had won the FA Cup against Leeds, and he was he, the Faces were playing Sunderland, I think, and he went to see them and you know he said it was just the most amazing atmosphere that night so um i think i got oh, that yeah, story it was brilliant fun it was just you know you felt like you they were part of you and you were part of them and i think that's a really important thing to try and get in i mean i remember i saw them so many times i remember standing down the front and ronnie wood came on stage and he looked down and he recognized me and waved hello and i thought you know that was i was wow look at that he's <laughs> Well, absolutely, my God, I know that those moments <laughs> can mean so much. I know. Well, I, yeah, I met I met them when, uh, Rod and Ronnie when they were playing with Jeff Beck, and they um, they were playing at Mill Hill Public School when I was a kid, and you couldn't get into the school end of term dance unless you were a member of the school. But of course, we wanted to all go and see the Jeff Beck group, and so we kind of smuggled ourselves in. And then we got recognised as not being members of the school and slung out. And uh, so we went round the back and saw all the guys in the dressing room and then they opened the window and let us climb in. <laughs> sneaked back into the hall and we got slung out again. <laughs> and we missed them. They said, oh, well, next time, come down and see us down the speakeasy. We're playing down there later on at 2 o'clock. And you thought, oh, yeah, you know. 
we're about 16, you know. Yeah. old enough to get up to the public school, let alone go to the speakeasy. God, that would have been amazing, though. Jeff Beck, yeah. blimey. I think I can remember one of those stories, I think, when... I don't know, because I, I don't know if it was when they were, you know, Ronnie and Rod were supporting, but they didn't they didn't get any money or food, so they were going to be going around trash cans. I think this was when they were in America, and they, they just would... They, they were playing all these shows. They were still completely hungry and poor, so they were still sort of yeah. rummaging in the sort of... the A bit like Top Cat, really, wasn't it? So... um I think that's one of the reasons they gave up one of their bands. I think that was the Jeff Beck band, but I might be wrong. Sorry, Jeff, if that was Yeah, I think the Jeff Beck band were just about to break through and then they split up and then, you know, Jimmy Page stole the idea and did all the Oddbird stuff and uh, put together the first the Zeppelin album and then suddenly they sold billions of records. Yes. Uh, did you see Terry Reid at that stage? Because he was going to be... Oh, yes, what a singer. I absolutely love Terry Reid. I used to go and see him every chance we got at that time. I've got about six of his albums, yeah. Oh, God. second one, Super Lungs one. What an album. Yes. Oh. I do like River. I think it's called River. Yes. Oh, brilliant album. I love it, yeah. It's got a really American... I think it was produced by an American guy, and it got a track called Dean on it, which I just remember thinking is amazing. But it's kind of... It's a bit more... I think he's probably had a bit more smoking. But it's got a nice vibe, and it's got some amazing yeah. songs on it. So um, you can't knock him. But he's... Uh, yeah, amazing, amazing. I've always yeah. remembered that there was a clip of him playing at the first Glastonbury Festival, which was just stunning. So, um, yeah... It's amazing. Yeah, I always when people say who was your favourite ever vocalist, I, I always say Terry Reid, and they say who? <laughs> That's if a bit you saw him live, oh, it was just breathtaking. His version of "Stay with Me, Baby" on that album is just outstanding. Yeah. yeah, I know. I can't remember the woman who guests on that Glastonbury video where he plays, and it's just uh, she's an amazing vocalist. And um, yeah, that people knew how to sing in those days, didn't they? But yeah, he's stunning actually, and uh, yeah, just an amazing singer and songwriter. So then. <laughs> I know. Good old Terry. He's still with us, actually. He's he's still doing Yeah, I've heard he was being interviewed on the Johnny Walker show a few years, a few weeks back or months back. Yes, was, there you go. So how did your band then develop? You know, it sounds like you were the, the person who was invited in more than the person who initiated. Uh, what it was is I was trying to learn bass and getting absolutely nowhere with it, and I said to John, you know, if we get a band together then I could learn as we were going along and you could show me what to play and I could do that. And he said, no, that's daft. Why don't we get Pat, because he's a really good uh, a bass player, and get back playing bass and you play the drums because, you, you know, I used to, when we set up and roaded for other bands like Bazooka Joe and stuff, we used to set the drums up and then we'd bash away for half an hour until the band turned up. And he said, you can play the drums a bit, you know, you play the drums and then... Knox was out of a band at that time. I said, well, Knox is free. Let's get Knox in as well. So we phoned up Knox, and uh, we went round to see him on a Sunday morning, sat in a pub, and we said, yeah, let's do it. And I had the back line of a band I was roading in for in the van at the time. So we went round my uh, parents' house, set up in the garage out in the garden, bashed through for a couple of hours. Police came round and told us to shut up because uh, the neighbours were all complaining. And we thought, oh, we've got something here. And then two weeks later, we did our first gig. Blimey, that, that was... was... So for the first re couple of rehearsals, we had, I had to borrow the drum kit from this other band. So I didn't actually own one. <laughs> yes. And um, interesting enough, you you sort of, um, yes, supported at the 100 Club, club dear old Chris Spedding, didn't you, in 76, which was at the time... Yeah, 
club festival, yeah. Well, that was uh, that was an interesting night. We turned up there, and, uh, and they said, "Oh, can we use your PA?" Because we thought there'd be a PA there because it was like a festival thing. And we said, "Oh, yeah, I suppose so. Otherwise, there won't be a queue." And so that kind of bumped us up to, uh, and, uh, you know, going on last. And then they said, "Well, Chris Bedding turned up, and they've been advertising his name on the bill." Um, but nobody that I don't think anyone had actually spoken to him and said to him, you know, are you going to do this? So he turned up and he said, well, I'm here. I'm prepared to go on, but I haven't got a band. And so they said to us, will you back Chris Bedding? So we said, yeah, OK. You know, Chris Bedding, gosh, you know, we used to go and see him in with Sparks. Or was it? No, what was the band? He calls Chuck. Yeah, that's right, yes. Snips on the vocals and that, and they were really good. And you think, God, he's a really brilliant guitar player. So we said, Yeah, all right. So we sat in the dressing room or the, the office in the 100 Club, and we had to. He said, yeah, He taught us how to play uh, motorbiking and another song, and then he said, What rock and roll songs do you know? You know, and we said, Well, how about this one, this one, and this one? I don't know, I can't remember what we played then. Um, you know, Chuck Berry stuff and uh, Little Richard stuff and Jerry Lee Lewis stuff, I, I imagine. So we did a bunch of that and filled him, you know, so that we could do half, we did half an hour of our stuff and then half an hour with him and it you know, went down the storm. And then that's how he, he said, oh, I really like this band. And he went to Mickey Most and said, do you, do you want to record them? Yes, and Mickey Most was, was, the, was the go-to producer at that time as well, wasn't he? Yeah, well, he was the big noise producer at that time, yeah. I mean, you know, he something like three out of five records that he released, you know, got into the top 20, so... He was very successful. I mean, I couldn't believe... At the time, people said to you know, you, you know, he's a teeny bop producer and he's this, that, and the producer and he's not that good. And, we, and I'm thinking, hang on a second, this is the guy that's done the Jeff Beck group. He's done all the Animals records. He's done Terry Reid and, you know, all these artists that are just fantastic and he's produced them. Why wouldn't you want to be produced by uh, Mickey Most? Mm-hmm. I couldn't believe, actually, because he died of asbestos, didn't he, which apparently was what he... Constructed. Yeah, he constructed. I didn't know that it was caused by asbestos. And I think they related it back to when he did his studio and he kitted it out, and it was asbestos that he used. And it was like, oh, I think you probably got it from when you did your studio back in the seventies or something. Which I remember thinking, that's that's horrendous, actually. Yeah, he built Rex Studios, didn't he? It was up around Regent's Park because we did some sessions there as well. Right. Yes. Because the thing, because because I did an yeah. interview with Chris Bedding kind of recently, and I didn't realise how many records he had played in, including the Harry. Nilsson, you know, um, I can't live if living is without you. And I said to him at the time, did you know when you were recording that, that was going to be quite such a classic? He said, you never know. You have no idea. The songs you think are going to be amazing aren't, and the ones that you think, that's oh, all right, become the greatest songs of all time. But his, his CV is extraordinary. And then he went on to do an early production for the Sex Pistols as well, didn't he? So Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's a very talented guy. He's a lovely guy. And... Uh... I mean, that's how we came to work with him again. They, his record company wanted to put out a, a, um, a CD of all his early demos and stuff, you know, record company in Germany. And so they dug out all the early demos and radio sessions and things that he'd done around that time, particularly the radio sessions. And they liked the one that we did with him best because um, we did a John Peel session with him after we did... Um, was it the Pogo dancing? Yes. We did a, and we did some stuff with him on that. And they said, how do you fancy doing some more recording with, with Chris Bedding? So we said, yeah, yeah. 
love to, you know, because, I mean, the guy's massively talented. He's a very nice bloke, and uh, if he's up for it, we'll definitely be up for it. So um, we went in and we did three songs, and then they and then, then they got cold feet or they didn't have the money or whatever. So in the meantime, we kind of... Pat said, you know, I've got downtime in the studio. Do you want to come in and we'll do a few more songs and then put it back to Chris and see if he wants to come in and put some guitar on the top? So we, we did, like, the backing tracks and some vocals and stuff. Phoned him up and said, we've done, you know, another... Oh, I can't remember how many more songs it was, you know probably about another eight or nine songs. Do you want to come and have a listen and see whether you want to, you know, do some work on them? So he loved it and said, yes, great. So we went in and polished it all off, you know, finished it all off with his help. Amazing. That is incredible. And did you feel, because obviously um, at the time you're probably just thinking this is quite nice, things are going so well. Um, you know, the punk kind of moment that happened at the Roxy, did you suddenly all think, oh, by God, we're punks? I didn't realise that. I thought we were just rock and roll. Did the, was there a sort of did you did you have that conversation? Um, I can't remember it. Really. I think we we always just thought, yeah, you know, we we're punks. That would do for us. It's it's interesting. It's good. You know, we kind of slotted into that because we figured punk was like the new rock and roll. You know, it was like the seventies rock and roll. We were trying to put some energy and some life back into the music scene because it had got pretty dire in the sort of 74, 75, you know, you had all these things like Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen, you know, and you kind of think, God, if that's the direction rock and roll's going, then I really don't want to know about this anymore. I thought it was quite absolutely the worst record I've ever heard in my life. That's dreadful, you know, eight minutes of absolute pretentious crap. So, <laughs> you know, for me, it was like, let's go out and get back to that spirit that you know, Little Richard and Chuck Berry had and all those kind of acts and get a bit of energy and life back into it. Yes, absolutely. So, uh, and, and at that time, you know, people said, oh, it's punk. So, you know, the Vibrators were punk, the Damned were punk, the Six Pistols were punk, the Clash were punk, the Stranglers were punk, the Jam were punk. But all those bands were, had their own different different characters and their own different style. It wasn't like a uniform that you put on and you had to play in a certain way. And I think, you know, a few years later, it did end up a bit more like that. You had to have the Mohican and all the rest of it. Yeah, yeah. I think I did an interview with, I think it was a guy who was in a band called, is it Eater, who were a very young band from that oh, period. Oh, yeah, yeah. I can't remember his name. But I think he said that after a few years, he looked at his audience and was like, oh, no, I don't really want to do this anymore. I've kind of, everyone wants to look like Sid Vicious, and it's like, yeah, I'm not, this isn't kind of what I got into music, you know, to just play. Yeah, I, I never I mean, I love the way all the kids that come to the gigs, if they've got the, you know, the red hair or the, you know, all the, all the gear, you know, as long as they're just wearing whatever they want, uh, you know, that's cool. I, I never had a problem with that. Yes. That so would what? have been, uh, is it, what's his name? Uh, God, yeah, good point. Chevron, his name, wasn't it? Yeah. Oh, I just remember the woman yeah. who... That... He did some stuff with him with the vibes as well. Yes. I just remember the woman Andy who... who... That's who it would have been. Who is it? Andy Blade. That's the one. You've got it. God, yeah. this is like one of those pop quizzes with um, Mike Reed. I just remember the singer who who guested with um, Terry Reed at the Glastonbury. It was the Linda Lewis who was oh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. amazing yeah. vocal. But but in '77, which was obviously a fantastic year for our, our good Queen, you um you supported Iggy Pop at this stage. What was that tour like? Oh, it was great. I really enjoyed it. It was a big bundle of fun. I mean. Um... We we got that because we we'd been to Berlin and we'd been working out there and I 
playing our, our single on, you know, um, We Vibrate on the German radio. And Iggy was out there rehearsing with David Bowie and they heard it and thought, oh, that, that could be the right band for us to support. So, um, and uh, we, the guy that we got to produce our first album was doing our live sound, Robin Mayhew. And he used to be the sound man for David Bowie and through that whole um, uh, Ziggy Stardust period, you know? Yes. All those gigs that they did. And uh, so Robin we had that connection with David Bowie. So when we turned up and said, oh, hello, you know, this is our sound engineer, of course he said, oh, bloody hell, it's Robin. So we had a, we got on very well with them. But yeah. for me, it was like, I, I spent the whole time watching the drummer thinking, God, I've got to be, I've got to get my, up my game and learn to play a lot better. <laughs> was that Hunt Sales at the time? Yeah, Hunt Sales, yeah. Oh my God, that's amazing. Because, um, well, funny enough, so one thing that I'm very excited about, because I did an interview with dear old Robin last year, Robin Mayhew, who um, told me, you know, how he got into being part of David Bowie's kind of being the sound man for the Ziggy Stardust tour, which was kind of, it went on for several, two years before it all went. But he was in the in a 60s band called The Presidents, wasn't he? And was yeah. kind of going kind of slightly nowhere fast, but started doing sound. And then Angie Bowie came up to him and tapped him on the shoulder and said, you've got a really good sound and David has got a terrible sound. Can you, can you sort of sort it out for us? Because Angie seemed to be the, the mover and the groover from what he said. Well, that, yeah, that was his story, not Angie's. And uh, so yeah. he, he was two years doing that Ziggy Stardust playing virtually every night for two years around the world, which was kind of amazing. And then I saw that he, yes, he did your album and he's such a nice guy. Yeah, because our manager knew him from, you know, tour managing and stuff. And he ran uh, his his PA company was called Ground Control, you know. Yes. Ground Control to Major Tom. So with that '77 uh, tour, was David Bowie on keyboards? Was that the one that he? he that's would... it. Yeah. My God. So the um, it was quite. Uh... My God, you'd only been in the band for a year. Well, the band had only been going for a year. This must have felt yeah. like you were you were fast tracking to uh, rock stardom with Iggy Pop, Hunt Sells, and David Bowie. Say that. I, I mean, you know, to us it was just, you know, every day you were trying to get bigger and better and, you know, do better shows. And every band in Britain at that time was trying to get on that tour. And we, we were just in the right place at the right time with the right connections, you know, that our manager managed to sort it out. So it was very good. Yes. And there was a lot to learn, you know. You could go and see that, that band and watch them from backstage every night and, and uh, you know, think, yeah, oh, right, that's what we got. We got sort of get our, up our game and get better and stuff. You know, like I say, I watched sales and thought, wow, he's a much better drummer than me. I better start doing even more practice. But then, you know, I'd only been playing a year, so I wasn't doing bad. Yes, I know from doing the interview, he said he he was very influenced by jazz drummers over the in his youth. And he's uh, he had a very famous father called Soapy Sells, who was one of those kind of comedians that he used to watch on telly, which was a bit weird, really, wasn't it? Sort of going, oh, yeah, that's my dad. He's, yeah, quite quite a famous kind of, you know, person, I suppose, in America at that stage in the 60s. So, um, yeah, blimey, that is that is quite something. So when you got the first album out, Pure Mania, were you pleased with it? Yeah, I, 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 at the time I thought it was great. It came out great. We did remix it for American Thing. Uh, I, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't sure that that was a better mix, but it was different. But, um, yeah... I think afterwards we we heard other records and thought, oh no, you know, we haven't done it as well as we wanted to, and we wanted to improve it. And but at the time, the the the, the kind of ethos of going in 
to that to make that album was to try and you know get an album with a lot of songs on it that were short sharp and and had a very live sound you know like we were trying to recapture the sound that we had on stage so a lot of it was done pretty much live in the studio with you know not too many overdubs you know guitar player john playing the guitar solos you know as we put down the backing tracks and uh I think we probably overdubbed the vocals and the backing vocals, but a lot of the rest of it was done bash in one, you know, bass, drums, guitars all at once. Yes. Did it? Because um, on the follow-up album, you'd you'd worked with obviously Robin on that one, but you had Vic, Vic Mail, who was the who went on to work with Motorhead at that stage, didn't he? On the first two albums. Yeah. I mean, what was Vic like to work on for um, the the was it V two album? Yeah, well, he was a lot more meticulous. And, I mean, we'd done the sort of, gone for that live approach, so now we were trying to get a better studio sound, get better guitar sounds, better drum sounds, and try and, you know, get a more, more produced, more better production on it. So Vic Mayo was the man to do it. And I think he was a genius. He was a very, very clever guy. And we did, I did quite a lot of work with him because I played for the inmates for 15 years as well, and we did about six albums with Vic Mayo. Right. Um, Bagged in to do their first album as a session. Vic phoned me up and said, will you do uh, this album for a band called The Inmates as a session for me? And I said, oh, yeah. And I kept in contact with them. And then the other drummer left. I had a couple of drummers and they left. And they phoned me up and said, can you do a French tour for us next week? And I said, yeah, OK. And off we went. And I was in for 15 years after that. But Vic was very, very good, very meticulous. He, he, he would spend a lot, lot more. We had more time and we had more budget, so we could spend more effort on that album. I mean, on, on the Troops of Tomorrow, we just did one whole day where we just sung the song to get that big, you know, football crowd kind of sound on the on the on the album. Yes, amazing. About twenty or thirty times that day. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a shame, in a way, that. Uh that Motorhead decided not to go with him on their third album and got Fast Eddie to do it, which kind of was the end of the band for yeah. um, and various other reasons. But, yeah, that was that was never good to have... Um, yes, it's, it's good to have another person, but at the time, yes, these things happen. But then did you find that... Because, that, I mean, this is slightly simplistic, but, you know, you had that punk period, and then after a few years, as you know, with any scene, you start to get sort of... it's It, it loses its kind of fun bit. And the after the, the V2 album, there was a... Did you sort of have a little bit of a problem of what to do next, you know, as we trundled towards the late 70s? Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I didn't, but I think other people in the band did. John wanted to do different things, and, you know, Pat had left by that time because he was trying to do something different, and, and it was very, very difficult to replace Pat and John. We, we managed to replace Pat with Gary Tibbs, and he did extremely well. He was great. But then when it came to replacing John, it was very difficult because he's got such a unique style. And we auditioned oh, hundreds of guitar players and we ended up with Dave Birch, who did a really, really good job. But uh, it still wasn't, you know, it didn't have the kind of zest that we really wanted. And then Knox wanted to go solo and it all sort of crumbled and fell apart over, over a period of a couple of years. We, we had line-up changes and... It just didn't didn't all gel as well as it should have done. But you know that's the, that's what you have to do in bands. Yes, was, we got back together in what was it eighty two, and it was Pat and John was sitting in a pub getting drunk, and they said let's reform the band, and they phoned me up and said I said yeah I'll do it. You know I'm doing other things at the moment, but yeah I can find time for that. And Knox said the same, and then 
since then we've been going pretty well without a break since then. Yeah. So this is, a, I mean, with the 80s, as it sort of progressed, you know, you had that post-punk period and it had been sort of like the goth scene and psychobilly and then there was a narco-punk and then kind of indie pop started in 83, really with, you know, the Smiths, which were five years. Did you find, uh, yeah, and there was all the new romantic stuff and, and at that time, you know, Trevor, that Trevor Horn production sound, Frankie goes to Hollywood and ABC and then sort of Duran Duran and Dire Straits. So did you sort of find it trying to find your sort of footing in the 80s, was that quite tricky for the band? Um, we just did our own thing, you know. We, uh, it was obvious, you know, when you're on an independent label, you're not going to get into the big time. They, we never really got the radio play that the vibrators deserved, probably because of the name of the band. I mean, we did a thing somewhere in, in America last year, or, you know, on the last tour, and the guy's saying... Oh, you know, we can't really say the vibrators on radio. I go, what the hell are you talking about? You know, it's, it's your bonkers. You know, it's absolutely nothing bad about it at all. You know, music is, you know, a vibration. But anyway, we never got the radio play that we did. But we, you know, we we sold out all the shows everywhere we played, and we were busy, and we were selling, you know, enough records to keep making the next one. You know, and so we just kept going and going out playing live. It was good fun. Everyone was enjoying it. And, uh, you know, as far as me and Knox was concerned, we just keep keep the ball rolling, you know. Yes, absolutely. I mean, with the, the this lineup, you had, he was at Mark Duncan on bass as well and Mickey Owen on, on vocals and guitar. Because his vocals are quite Lou Reed-esque, aren't they? Probably everyone says um, that. Knox's are, I think, more than Mickey's. Yeah. Right. It was Knox, was it? Yeah. Knox sounds a bit more uh, Lou Reedy sometimes and we have to try and avoid doing that. We always used to try and make sure that we didn't sound too much like Lou Reed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He was always very acutely aware of that. But Mickey was always a little bit more sort of like Ronnie Wood or Ron Lane or something. He was a big faces fan like I was. So uh, that was always what uh, where Mickey was coming from. Yeah. But I think his, his guitar playing was really good and we had a different style in the band there. But, you know, whoever you bring into the band brings their own style of playing and you, the band is, has to sort of change a little bit to accommodate them. You can't get anybody who is exactly like John Ellis or Pat Colley or whatever, you know, or Gary Tibbs. They all sound slightly different. So the band does change its sound slightly and you have to accommodate these people if you want them in the band. Yes. He probably would still be playing us now, but he moved down to Bristol and it just became impractical to, uh, you know, try and run a band with people living hundreds of miles apart. Yes. And obviously this this was a sort of a completely amazing sort of second run for the band because you, you record, you know, like four albums in four years, which is always a good good sort of time and, and also playing live a lot. So did did it sort of feel like you'd got a good energy with the with the lineup with this at this stage? I think so, yeah, it was all good. We were just going out playing. All, all the shows were really busy. You know, we played all over Europe. We didn't get into America until the end of that kind of line-up, and that was very tough, and, uh, and that's probably what would cause people to start to think, oh, my God, I can't do too many American tours, but because um, that is, you know, mega hard work than going to America. Yes. Well, it's interesting because most bands I've found, you know, have this five-year narrative, you know, especially from the 80s, you know, they get together, they have 12 months, kind of honeymoon period, they get a single, John Peel plays it, 
they get the John Peel session, you know, with Del Griffith from, you know, Mott the Hoople producing it, and they have quite a good time. And then the first album's great, and the second album's not too bad. The third album, they're really starting to struggle. But what's really interesting is that mostly they often say, you know, we went to America, we came back, and we broke up. Because you know, America just sounds like a really tough gig, and it sounds like you'd also experience some of that as well. Yeah, people always say to you, you, to me, if you're going to be in a band, you want to go and play in America, you want to go and see the world. I mean, I've just been doing things the other day, and I've worked out we played in 38 different countries throughout the world, which is not bad for a little band. Yes, but, absolutely. Uh, radio We've been all over the world. We've done Moscow and you know, and all these kind of places, Australia, New Zealand, America. But America's a big country. I mean, it's... What is it? It's about from here to Berlin is about a thousand miles, and America's three thousand miles across. Yes, it's a. It's so a... When you start going from west to east or east to west, you've got a six or eight hour journey every day, and then no. you've got to do a gig on the back of it. And if you have too many days off, you don't make any money. Yeah, I know, because a lot of people in the the European world, especially with the you know political stuff, you know, it was like doing thirty days in thirty gigs in thirty days in a. In Europe and, and sort of because, you know, you've got Van, PA, you know, various other members that you've, you know, not on, in the band that you're going to be paying. So you don't really want sort of swanning around for two or three days here and there because you're thinking that's the profit, that's the profit yeah. going, you know. So I think most bands get quite wise to that. But with age, it's also gets a bit harder because you, um, yeah, that's quite, a, that's quite a heavy one. Did you, With America, did you play ever play Las Vegas, do the, the bowling and punk kind of weekends? That no, they we never did thing. No, we have played Las Vegas a number of times, probably about 15, 20 times or something. Yeah. We play a couple of different bars there. We play about five or six different bars there. And do you sort of find that uh, with the band that you're still always getting a yeah, young audience who sort of have kind of come across you on Spotify? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, they come across, they, you know, they get bored with what's on the radio. You know, they don't want to listen to... Um, all the sort of, you know, regular stuff that's on the radio, all the sort of, um, you know, take that and all that kind of stuff. They want to get into something that's a bit dangerous, a bit energetic and a bit lively and a bit, you know, more, um, you know, rock and roll. And so there's, there's always going to be young kids that want to go down and listen to that kind of music. Yes. So uh, the gigs are towards the end of our career, you know, you've got, you know, 20-year-olds and 60-year-olds. So, you know, it's, it's, whereas, you know, in the 70s, Everyone was twenty years old. I know. Too old, you know, like Knox was thirty, and he was too old. <laughs> <laughs> well, Richard Strange said, you know, when they were about seventy-five, that they, you know, like he was two years too early for punk because he was, you know, like thinking, oh, you know, we've been doing this for too long. But all the audience were sort of young, and they all, you know, sweeping statement, but you know, were the ones who formed punk bands, and they felt like they'd slightly missed the boat. It's all about timing, though, in music, isn't it? Timing is everything. Right, I mean, we. I think you know, looking back on it now, we were at the right place at the right time when we put our little band together, and we just went for it. You know, I mean, at the time, you know, we did everything we could to try and you know get as many shows as we could, play wherever we could, and do as much work as we could. You know, we did all sorts of things like going around painting our name on the floor outside the you know Radio One and everything, so that every DJ that walked in saw our name and you know crazy stunts that we did. Uh, it was good fun. Yes. We really went for it, you know. I remember they phoned us up and said, oh, we need a soul band for the night. And we said, okay. And we 
turned up and we stuck um, knock on wood or something in the set and just did the regular set and put knock on wood in. That's a sort of soul song in it. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So two years ago, you brought an L out an album on um, Cleopatra Records, Mars Casino, which is the kind of the original lineup, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that that was the the one we did with Spedding. That's when we got back and you know with the record company saying, "Oh, let's do an album with Spedding." And we, like I say, we did it all and then got Spedding in at the end. And that, they, and yeah, you know, it came out really good. Knox had some good songs for it, and uh, John had good songs. Uh, it all came very well, you know. I mean, Pat is you know the excellent producer. He's right up there with the big males of the world when it comes to his producing. He likes doing this kind of style of music, so. Uh, it works very well. Yeah, it's amazing. And then, dear old Cherry Red Records, who are always, always good sort of for their compilations and collections and box sets and fantastic sleeve notes, have have got, brought together this latest one, which is your sort of the last, the last half of the eighties. So you must. Uh, when did this start to get mentioned and decided to do it? Um, well, they just phoned us up and said, you know, do you want to, you know, um, what's his name? Um, Ian. Yeah, no, not Ian. Um, the guy who used to run Captain Oi. Um, oh. oh, I can't remember Captain Oi. Oh, it'll kill me if I forget his name. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm very bad with names. <laughs> um, yeah, he he said, "Oh, you do you want to do this, Darren? Ru- no, not Darren Russell. That's the guy that books was in it." Oh, I'm I'm just I'm just thinking of another guy called Gary Bushel. Yeah, he, he phoned us up and said, "Do you want to, you know, sell all these albums? They're all sitting around waiting, and Cherry Red want to buy them." So he he went through and found everything that we had and put it to Cherry Red, and, and we said, "Yeah, let's do it." And put some money in the bank and uh, for our pension, sort of thing. Absolutely. Now, were these all on just one label, like Revolver Records, or were they in di- on different labels? Yeah, they were mainly on Revolver, I think, at that time, weren't they? Yeah, and. Uh, yeah, I think it was Revolver we got involved in. It was a friend of a friend that uh, friend of, that was was setting up a record label. We wanted to do it, so we, he signed us to do that. But they obviously went out of bust, and those records were unavailable for quite a long time. Yes, absolutely. So did it was this kind of one of those projects that started at the beginning of lockdown or two years ago? Um, well, the, what we did in lockdown, no, this this was. Fairly recent. It, it, this came up about a year ago, but we did we did in lockdown. We were bored, and so um, Cleopatra in America said, "Do you want to do one final album? We'll give you a bit more money for it." And so we said, "Yeah, okay." But it's good. And they said, well, "It's got to be the last album." We thought, "Well, we're not going to do too many more albums after this anyway." So uh, we took the money and we went in, and so we've got another album coming out in May of this year, in the end of April, May this year. It's stuck in the queue waiting for all the vinyl to be pressed up, apparently. Yes, probably behind Adele. And that'll be called Mars Casino, and that's with um, Pete on bass and Nigel on guitar and Knox and myself. Mars Casino, blimey, that is, there's a busy schedule, actually. So the project coordinator on this is Mark Brennan. Yeah, Mark Brennan, yeah, yeah. He's your man, yeah, he, actually. Yeah, he that whole um, repackaging of the... Um, of the, of the uh, Revolver stuff for Cherry Red. Yes. Yeah. Well, I say the new album's called uh, Fall Into the Sky. 
But uh, during after lockdown, you know, Nigel went to um, back to Australia, and a lot of his family are out in Australia, so he's gone to live in Adelaide and be with his daughter and his mother and his brother and stuff. And Pete went back to Finland, so it just became impossible to try and do little shows around and things. You know, you can't fly people in from Australia to do shows. It's just not a possibility. It's not going to happen. So, um, no, so we had a couple of shows left, so we thought we'd do a couple of shows with um, the original lineup. So that's next weekend. Blimey, that's amazing. So who's the who's on the lineup of the next or the the album that's going to come out in May or June? Yeah, that's me and Knox, and then Nigel uh, on guitar, Nigel Bennett on guitar, and Pete on uh, on bass. And that's it, really. So do you? Um, I mean, if this goes successfully, I mean. Would there be a possibility of still recording another album, but sort of, you know, doing it all from sort of remote places? There's always that possibility, but, you know, if it goes to number one and sells a million copies, they'll probably be asking us to do it, and then we, uh, we might have to go back in the studio, but we'll wait until we'll see. <laughs> We're getting a bit old. You know? <laughs> yes, this is true. You might have to go and sort of step in at Caesars Palace in Vegas and take over a few nights from Adele as she sort of recovers. Las Vegas is probably about my least favourite town in the whole world. Oh, was it? Yeah. It just doesn't appeal to me, that whole gambling and pornography and stuff. It's just not my cup of tea. I, just, you know, I don't know. There's a lot of good punk kids there that come to the shows and stuff, but, you know, compared to other places, it's not my, my thing. Yeah. Stinking hot. It's in the middle of the desert. Wherever you come from, it takes about six hours to drive there. <laughs> I know this. It's not an easy place to go to. I mean, when you, I mean, with the band, I mean, two things. Have you managed to sort of keep kind of ownership and track of all the records and and that you've done and and both studio and live albums? Because you've got a phenomenal phenomenal discography here. Yeah, pretty much. I think I remember them all. When I was sorting this stuff out with Cherry Red, I had to get all the contracts out, and it's about it's a pile of papers about two foot high. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of stuff there, but yes. I've got, you got it's all in my brain most of it because reading through them all takes forever. So, uh, but yeah, it's all pretty good. Oh, that's uh, fantastic! I mean, when you look at the the band over the over the decades, oh sorry, I said when you look back at the band over the decades, is there any particular period or particular album that you you have fondest memories of? Usually the ones you're making at the moment, you kind of think, yeah, that, that came out really well. I do do like did like V2. I thought that came out really, really good. Um, I thought it was much a big improvement on Pure Mania, sound-wise and song-wise. We probably, if Pat had still been in the band and we'd had one or two of his songs on it, it might have been a bit better. Um, so that was always a favourite of mine. And, and um, the one, the first one we did with uh, Mickey and Mark, I think that came out, it recharged that came out really well as well. Yes, I did think, um, yeah, I, I did really like, oh God, now I can't remember which one it was actually I was playing a lot of today. And it, I suppose actually I did love the vocals and it was, yes, it was Recharge, which has the opening song of String Them Along. I think it's because yeah. it just it just has that, I mean, I have to say, it does, it does remind me a bit of Lou Reed, which you probably hear. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah that's <laughs> thinking, that. It is a bit Lou Reed. We always try to make sure it wasn't too Lou Reedy. Yes. I mean, at that stage, were you kind of kind of influenced or, you know, because it was kind of a weird period during the 80s. I mean, I suppose every decade is. But, you know, during that kind of the late 80s, there was, 
I suppose the the ecstasy world came along and there was that sort of dance scene which, you know, had people like the Happy Mondays and Primal Scream and sort of... Um, and then you had those American noise bands like Sonic Youth and Big Black and the Butthole Surfers. I just wondered what you, what you were listening to, to at that point or had you just sort of stayed with what you all, you know, as yeah, Lemmy... stayed with what I was doing. I, there, were, there, there came up occasionally bands like that that you go and see and you think, wow, they're really, really good. I remember seeing the Wonder stuff and thinking, God, if somebody signs them, they're going to be big. Um, but basically, you know, we were working pretty hard at that time. We were doing a lot of gigs, uh, you know, touring a great deal. And um, it was towards the end of that that I started working a lot with... Um, inmates as well so i was doing sort of 120 gigs and you know two or three european tours every year so yes was pretty busy you were very busy actually a lot of those bands like you know when you were younger you had plenty of time and you go and see all those bands but when you're playing a lot you don't have the chance yeah missing things that you really wished you'd seen this is true and do you i mean how do you um cope or have cope you know like um I suppose physically, you know, with with sort of being the drummer, because I know I did an um, interview with a, was it, oh the blue the blue screaming messiah screaming blue messiahs, and the drummer was like, you know, was kind of a bit hobbly at times and a bit sort of yeah because of his drumming. Did you you know has it had much of an effect on your health? Um, no, I think I read an article once that said that you know um, drummers should live older than people because you have to do like four way coordination with. So you have to get your leg, both your legs and your arms working separately and independently of each other. And then if you're singing, then it's kind of almost like five-way coordination. So that keeps your brain active. And, of course, it's physical and, uh, you know, you've got to stay fairly fit to do it. And like I say, I've always played sports and stuff. I've always played cricket all through the summer. And, uh, you know, I've never been one for... I've never smoked... And I kind of quit drinking almost. Well, I don't quit drinking, but I cut back on the drinking massively just when, before the band started because I thought I wouldn't live to be 27 if I don't stop. And uh, so I've always kind of been healthy. And to me, just going out and playing and keeping strong, fit, and healthy, you know, it's good fun. So you don't want to spoil it by being sick and ill and getting tired. But I know a lot of drummers got worn out. I, I'm surprised Kenny was like that. But. Uh, He's a very good drummer as well. I used to like the Screaming Boom Messiahs. I drove them around a few times. Yes, I think they. I think they did have a bit of a rock and roll lifestyle, which also didn't help really. So. Yeah, they did. Uh, did have a bit of that rock and roll lifestyle. When I was driving them around, they're kind of surprised that I don't smoke and didn't drink much and didn't want to go out and party. I said, "Well, I'm driving tomorrow. I can't do that." <laughs> and the inmates did you were you in in the band for most of that time or did you were you did you say you were um, I did the first album as a session Big Male phoned me up to do that as a session but we were doing the vibrators at the time and it didn't dawn on me that I could possibly be in two bands but I kept in touch with them and did odd things I did a couple of gigs with them around that time um, I did a party for Stiff Records once and with Madness Madness got signed the next week and went on to become Mega. Yes, they did become Mega. Yeah. And I, so I always kept in touch with Ben and Tony and that. And like I say, they did a couple of albums with Jim Russell that were really good. And then they got another drummer in and he... I think he pulled out to do a, a tour with um, Banana Rama or someone. And... Um, 
and they phoned me up and said, oh, can you do a tour of France with us in a fortnight? And I said, yeah, of course I can, you know. Yes, oh, Bananarama was always going to get that gig. Because they got signed. I mean, you, you were on Epic Records, weren't you, for the first two albums? Yeah. And was that a good, a good sort of relationship? Did that sort of... Yeah, I thought we did really well with them. It was a shame that it all fell through, you know, that you know, people kept leaving the band and then, you know, they, they lost face in us because we, we kept changing lineups and and it wasn't working very well with the line the last lineup that we had. And then uh, Knox said, oh, maybe I should do a solo album, and that was that. You know, it was the plug was pulled. and yes. was the way. But they, they were pretty good. I liked them. We used to do a, go in and see them, and you know, they'd phone you up, and can you come in and do this and that? And I was always up for doing it. Other people didn't want to sometimes. And, but, I, you know, I don't mind. Yeah. Because I think just before, I don't know, just before Christmas, I think it was the, the drummer with the Searchers who started in the sort of like 60... I don't know, 62 or 63. I mean, he's still sort of doing it. And he's the one who sort of kept the baton of the band going. Do you sort of feel that kind of, that you've kept the sort of the flame of um, the vibrators going? Yeah, I think so. I think with Knox as well. I mean, you know, you've got to give him credit. I mean, he he couldn't do any more touring when he got to about 65 and he just said, oh, I can't. And he was like, you know, suffering with his health a little bit. But I'd like to say I've always been, you know, the one for doing exercise, going swimming and stuff and keeping fit and healthy. So I was able to keep it going. And what it was, was we had a festival to do up in the north of Norway, in Tromso, above the Arctic Circle, you know, with the midnight sun and everything. And mm-hmm. all the chicken, everything was paid. And Nox said, I, I just don't think I can do it. But I said to him, Pete and Nigel, Pete, you can sing, you don't have to do all the lead vocals. And so he said, I can't learn all the songs in a fortnight. I said, well, all right, I'll do some of them. And then Nigel said, oh, well, you know, I'll, I'll do what I can. So me and Pete did most of the vocals, and, that, and we thought, hang on, this works. We can get away with this. It's very good. <laughs> so we just kept the ball rolling, and then, uh, you know, we wanted to keep Knox involved in it because of the songwriting and the singing and his guitar playing so we you know he kind of became a brian wilson figure that came in to help out when we were doing the albums to make the album stronger yes which is always useful it works really it makes it a lot easier if you'll get on and you you know because you're spending hours in hotel rooms and vans and what have you together so you know it worked very well pete was a very excellent singer and bass player so you know it was it was no problem yeah, and were you, did did being on the road suit your lifestyle and your and your personality? Yeah, I like yeah, I being on the road. You go around the world, you tour, you see different countries. You know, like I say, we've been all over the world, and you know, you just have to take the the rough with the smooth, don't you? You have hard days where you've got an eight-hour drive and you've got to get up at six o'clock in the morning and get a plane and all the rest of it. But at the end of the day, you do a show, the people enjoy it, you sell out crowds, you have a nice dinner and you, know, you talk to people and you meet people that you'd never meet in a million years. And they're really pleased to see that you, you've made the effort to get there and go and play for them. So that's very cool. I, I love every moment of it. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's, it is amazing with the band because cause you've all done so many things with other people, haven't you? You know, you've like that Pete Frame family tree, this, you know, like... Oh, yeah. with. Tibbs done, you know, did stuff with you know Hazel O'Connor on Breaking Glass, music and, and Adamant and people like that. So it's um yeah, it's a quite a fascinating story really. Each band has such a kind of like goes out in like you know I don't know the roots of a tree I guess you know. Yeah, just... there's 
only so many people out there playing and you've got to try and get people in the band that you trust and that you can get on with. So you tend to go for people that you know rather than a total stranger. Yes. If you go with a total stranger, you might find that he's a heroin addict or something on the quiet and you don't realise it and then suddenly you're on tour and it's a nightmare. (laughs) uh, Yes, that that would be rather tedious. I mean, have you managed to archive your kind of career in in the sense of sort of keeping lots of posters or notes or diaries or yeah you know. I'm for that yeah i've been sort of giving stuff away to museums and stuff lately people keep phoning me up and saying have you got something so i've been sending stuff out to the paraguay punk rock museum and uh, there's a punk rock museum in las vegas that's got a bunch of stuff and i just sent another load of stuff out to some archive in germany about our time in germany in 77 that went in the post yesterday. So, but I've still got a lot of stuff. But I'm sort of getting rid of all the doubles and things, and trying to keep one of everything instead of five. That <laughs> was very good to 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 be to be such a womble when you were in the band and um, oh, yeah. Well, I've still got all the posters up and framed up on the, all around the house and all the pictures and all the rest of it. But uh, I mean, our manager was going to throw it all away when the band and I said, no, no, stick it in the lock up. We'll keep it. So. A lot of it's been stashed in the back of the lock-up for years and years and years. And it's only because of this lockdown that I have to clear it all out and hang on, let's see what we've got in here. <laughs> Excellent. God, that must have been fantastic, actually. Yeah. I do I do love those kind of... I've been to a few of those exhibitions where you just see material. OK, it was David Bowie's but at the V&A, but it was very good. So, um, yeah, yeah. Have you ever been tempted then, you know, because I've noticed this recently, there's been a lot of books coming out in the last five years of people's, either, you know, a lot of photographic books or a bit of a story of what they've done just to archive it again. Have you Have you sort of thought, mm, this could yeah, be... I have thought of it. I've done about 80 pages of a book and then I sort of stopped and then, and then when I've finished with these last few gigs and bits and bobs and I've got a bit more time on my hand, the trouble is I'm hopeless at all this computer stuff, so it's all written in pencil in books. <laughs> <laughs> but, yes. Uh, yeah, I'll get around to finishing it all up. And uh, a couple of you know, I, everywhere I live, you know, in Brightlingsea, everyone keeps saying, oh, you've got to do a book, you've got to do a book, you've got all these great stories. So maybe I will, yeah, maybe I'll get it out. But, you know, I just think, oh, well, nobody want to read it, but uh, probably some people will. Yes, they do. I do. I love those. I mean, even Robin's got a little book out that I got, you know, when he um, he sent me his kind of book and a few... He, funny enough, he sent me a few CDs that he... Well, the CD of the Ziggy Stardust night from his The Mixing Board, The Fallen, yeah. the fallen of Ziggy Stardust. And it was just so sweet, you know, so I'm so pleased. I'm trying to get Baby Baby played by Johnny Walker on his, you know, his 70s show, and I think he sent him, like, a some... Uh, live stuff from Ziggy Stardust tours, you know, in the 70s and said, you know, I'll give you this if you play Baby Baby, but he still hasn't played Baby Baby on the Johnny Walker show, so never mind. <laughs> so I cool. saw him, he lives down in Bognor Regis and we played down there and he came up and he said, oh, hello, do you remember me? Okay. Uh, oh, you're, 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 yeah, Robin, oh, my God, yeah, I hadn't seen him since, you know, 77, that was about five years ago, so that was quite fun. God, he must have been amazed. Yes. Yeah, a lovely bloke. Yeah, got on very well with him. He was sitting there chatting away for hours before the gig, you know, so it was good. Yeah, fantastic. And you met David Bowie and, Z- and Iggy Pop, which were quite... Yeah. 
Incredible. Yes, it was. It was good. I mean, if there was one little thing you could have, or two things you could have said to your, say, your sixteen or eighteen-year-old self starting out, is there any sort of words of wisdom that you might have just sort of wanted to tell them, even if they ignored I, you? I, I mean, just say, just go for it, a hundred percent. You can't go into these things and do it half-heartedly. You have to give it absolutely everything that you possibly can. You can't have a day off. You know, and and think that you know someone else will do it for you. You you have to do it all yourself, and you have to really put your heart and soul into it. But it's like that in any business, you know, whether you're a builder or a cook or whatever. You know, I mean, my mother always used to say to me, the more you put into something, the more you get out of it. And uh, I think that's absolutely true. So you just got to go for it and do the best you can. Yes, that uh, means that sometimes you you your family get put on on hold, and you get all that that rubbish going, and you're like divorce. Well, absolutely. And were your parents, did they get to sort of see, see your career take off? Um, th- yeah, they did and they didn't. I mean, I don't think my father was terribly happy about it all because I had a proper job before that and I dumped that in. And, you know, I couldn't wait to get out of there. It was a waste of time. I worked for Marconi Space and Defence Systems and that was... Couldn't wait to get out of there. And then, you know, you kind of maybe grudgingly, you know, saw the band take off and then sort of, you know fold up and all the rest of it but um, I, I played with a like a little jazz combo with a girl called Sylvia Griffin in the, the 80s as well I was doing that on the side and with a piano and a double bass and we played Ronnie Scott's and so my parents came down and see me at Ronnie Scott's and they thought oh, well, it's, yeah it's okay you know he's good stuff <laughs> <laughs> all the kind of music that he likes but I, I'm doing that again now in Brightling City I'm playing and I've got a little jazz blues combo called Vic and the Vapor Rubs and we got this girl singer and she was just like the barmaid in the local pub and she turned up and she was uh, having a rehearsal and we thought well she said she can sing a bit so yeah yeah bring her down let's have a, maybe she can sing one or two songs <coughs> and she walks in and starts singing and thought, oh my god Janice Joplin's just walked in the room you know Oh, excellent. So, yeah, it's fantastic. One of the best singers I've ever worked with. And of course, she doesn't even know it, but uh, she'll find out one day, I expect. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting, isn't so it? I'm, I'm, I have a couple of bands down here. I've got another band with some friends called EEM, and it's all just, that's our initials, E-E-E-M. And, um, and that's good fun. You know, we go out and just do our little shows around here locally, and all our mates come, and it's great fun. It's good fun. Yes, well, you, you've got to keep on doing it because, um, yes, look at the, the the Rolling Stones. I mean, they've just been amazing. Their last kind of six months, they've just done that massive tour. And, um, yeah, it's been brilliant to see them do it. And even if they, you know, they... They should have found me up instead of Steve Jordan. I'd have done it. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been quite nice, wouldn't it, really? Yeah. Yes. And... One other thing they said to me when I, when I did the first... Uh, inmates album I said how do you want this song to sound how do you want me to play the drums on this they said just try and be like Charlie Watts I said oh well that should have been too hard I can do that 
Excellent. Yes, nice one. Well, look, this has been fantastic. Thank you ever so much, Eddie, yeah, for this, this for your, for your time. And um, I'll I'll send this to um, the guys at Cherry Red Records who sort of fixed it up. But it's been great listening to the your latter eighties work. So um, yes, thank you ever so yeah, much. Yeah, I've, I've been listening to it for a week as well, and I thought these sounds are really good, aren't they? Yes, I know. There's, yeah. there, I, Some I think. Of the covers- you know, like Slow Death and stuff. Wow, what a fantastic song. You know, it's only been covered by two or three other people. I know, it's funny, isn't it? I've, I've sort of discovered more things from that decade roughly and and sort of either side of it that I missed the first time which is kind of because at the time you can't always listen to stuff because you'd you didn't have streaming you didn't have computers you had to go and buy it or listen to it on the radio and and if you bought it it was like three four ninety nine which is sometimes you thought I haven't you know I don't know it was you only had so much money didn't you so um yeah well I just bought records I've got hundreds of them upstairs I don't know how many albums I've got Several hundred, I think. Yeah. I, I mean, I haven't streamed anything. I don't know how you do any of that. I'm hopeless at it. I can't bear it. I think, you know, I'm really happy that vinyl's coming back into fashion and people are going out and buying it. It's the real thing, you know. I think so. Yes, I know. I'd sort of um, holding a copy of an album. Yes, the smell. You, the band, you're giving money to that band and keeping them going and uh, keeping the whole scene alive. It's, it's very important. I know. I, I, Hate to be starting out now. It must be terrifically difficult, but you have to go about it in a completely different manner. But then you could end up like you know, like a bell, where you go from nothing to mega, and then you can't really cope with it. Uh, I know they need they need to be sort of out there four four in the morning unloading their gear in a, <laughs> in in three flights of steps from a transit yeah. van. You know that's. <laughs> it's quite tricky, isn't it? That's you know, especially in the middle of winter, you just think, yeah, you really need to, you really need to be into it, don't you? You've got to want to do it. You've got to do it. But look, this has been amazing. Thank you ever so much for your time. And um, look, have a great I'll evening. Catch up with you another day, yeah. Let us know, and uh, I'll speak to the guys at Cherry Road and tell them it's all been good. It's all been good. Excellent. Thanks a lot. Take care all and right, have a lovely no evening. Bye bye. Cheers. Bye bye. Bye bye. And that was me in conversation with Eddie from The Vibrators, Eddie Edwards, or John Eddie Edwards. Anyway, look, massive thank you for giving me the time for that. And um, as we were talking about The Vibrators, the albums, uh, the box set came out or is coming out this month, which is 1985 to 1995 CDs with lots of bonus so do check it out buy it it will change your life and they've got a new album out as well if you want to contact me yeah i know so exciting um you can on facebook twitter instagram just do c86 show keep it positive please god i can't cope with any negative vibes and uh, yes all these have been interviewed um interviewed no archived you can find those on spotify i know itunes pod bean just go for c86 show it's all good take care have a great week <laughs>